listening to community-supported radio, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Thursday, January 21st, and I'm Claudio Mendoza. It's time for KVMR Evening News. KVMR's Evening News airs Monday through Friday from 6 to 6.30 p.m. For their support, we'd like to thank Dr. Allison McCormick and Auburn Dermatology Center, offering an expanded practice and a remodeled facility. Openings available to new and existing patients on Professional Drive off Bell Road in Auburn. More information at auburndermatologycenter.com. Today, following NPR headlines and regional weather, we'll listen to this week's edition of Bravehearts, followed by a national public radio report on inequality in our health system as revealed by the current COVID-19 crisis. Then, National Native News reports on reactions to President Biden's order to revoke the Keystone XL pipeline permit. And closing out today's newscast, we have an essay by Molly Fisk. At 6.30, we bring you The Money Show with Mark Cunaberti, and at 7, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Here are today's NPR headlines. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease expert, took questions from reporters today, saying there is some reason to say there are signs of stabilizing in terms of new coronavirus cases. When you look more recently at the seven-day average of cases, remember we were going between three and 400,000 and two and 300,000. Right now it looks like it might actually be plateauing in the sense of turning around. However, Fauci also made it clear that could turn out to be a blip. More than 409,000 people in the U.S. have now died from COVID-19. Fauci is saying if 70 to 85 percent of Americans are vaccinated by the fall, he thinks life could return to some degree of normalcy. We continue to learn more about the group of people involved in the storming of the Capitol January 6th. NPR's Tom Dreisbach reports nearly one in five of those now facing charges had apparently served in the military. NPR looked at the more than 140 people prosecutors have charged so far in connection with the attack. Close to 20% of them previously served in the military. Compare that to the 7% of all American adults who are veterans. In the wake of the attack, the Biden administration has said rooting out extremism is a top priority. Here's Biden's nominee for Defense Secretary, General Lloyd Austin, on Tuesday. The job of the Department of Defense is to keep America safe from our enemies. But we can't do that if some of those enemies lie within our own ranks. A military Times survey last year found that roughly one in three service members said they had personally witnessed white nationalist activity in the military. Tom Dreisbach, NPR News. Facebook is asking an independent panel to decide whether it should allow former President Donald Trump back on its platform. NPR's Shannon Bond reports the panel's ruling could have broader consequences for how the company treats political speech. Two weeks ago, after a mob of pro-Trump extremists stormed the U.S. Capitol, Facebook suspended the now former president indefinitely. Now, the company's new oversight board will review that decision. The independent panel is designed to weigh in on the hardest decisions over what Facebook does and does not allow users to post. Facebook executive Nick Clegg says the board's ruling will shape how the company handles other world leaders who break its rules. There are some people who think that Facebook should take down much more political speech. There are other people who think that we should leave much more 
more up. And where you draw that line is candidly a matter of pretty fraught debate. Clegg says Facebook believes suspending Trump was the right decision. Facebook is among NPR's financial supporters. Shannon Bond, NPR News. The nation's largest business lobbying group says it support president, supports President Biden's plan to tackle the coronavirus pandemic. Chamber of Commerce saying today via its chief policy officer, the new administration is correct that controlling the virus is paramount in terms of getting the economy going again. A mixed close on Wall Street. The Dow was down 12 points. The Nasdaq up 73. This is NPR. More than 1.3 million people filed new claims for unemployment last week. NPR Scott Horsley reports state claims were down, but claims were under a just-renewed federal program were higher than the week before. The mixed signals from the Labor Department probably say as much about the ebb and flow of government relief programs as they do about underlying weakness in the U.S. job market. Claims for traditional state unemployment aid dropped last week to a still elevated 900,000, but claims for a special federal program for gig workers and the self-employed rose sharply. Many of those new claims are likely from people trying to re-enroll after the program briefly lapsed in December. Congress has extended emergency jobless aid through mid-March, but with nearly 16 million people relying on some form of unemployment, it's doubtful most will have found new jobs by then. President Biden wants Congress to extend benefits at least through September. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Drug maker Eli Lilly says its COVID-19 antibody drug helped prevent illness among residents and staff of nursing homes and other long-term care facilities. Drug maker says residents and staff who got the drug had up to a 57% lower risk of getting COVID-19. Among nursing home residents only, there was up to an 80% reduction in risk. U.S. regulators last year allowed emergency use of the antibody treatment for mild or moderate coronavirus cases that don't require hospitalization. It's a one-time dose given intravenously. While nursing home residents account for less than 1% of the population, the group makes up nearly 40% of deaths from COVID-19. Crude oil futures prices closed lower, down 18 cents a barrel to 53.13 a barrel. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News. And now for the regional weather. For the Nevada City Grass Valley area, tonight's low will be 42. Tomorrow, a high of 44, and it looks like rain tomorrow morning. It'll be sunny on Saturday, but rain and snow is forecast for Sunday through next week. In the Sacramento region, tonight's low will be 45, and tomorrow's high will be 52, with rain late tonight through Friday. Partly cloudy on Saturday, with rain off and on through next week. And finally, in Truckee, tonight's low will be 25, with a high tomorrow of 34. It'll be partly cloudy Friday and Saturday, with snow forecast for Sunday through Wednesday of next week. Welcome to this edition of Bravehearts where we hope to increase your awareness and understanding of what homelessness looks like and some of the many organizations working on solutions to improve the homeless crisis. We are your hosts, William Wallace and Betty Louise, and these are the Bravehearts. Well, I want to thank both you, Gail, and you, David, for sharing your stories because so many times people think that homelessness is, well, I'm going to go straight to the point, addiction-oriented. Addiction, and it's like you chose the wrong path. Gail, you 
obviously you didn't choose the wrong path. You were affected by life circumstances and somebody else's choice, and I really appreciate your story. Gail, the first question I have for you is, what did you discover about yourself when it came to homelessness? What did you discover about your coping skills and your ability to do the best for yourself with what you had? Bluntly, being homeless was my greatest fear all my life. And it leads to abandonment. And it was the elephant in the room for me all of my life. And the thing that I never thought that I could ever survive. So there I was. And I went down deep inside and spoke to my spirit, to, to my soul, to creator, to whatever, whatever name people put on the, 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 the power that is available to us if we so choose. I had to get over any stigma regarding it, and I, it, that has been an incredible experience. Not that I was judgmental, but I was a lot more judgmental than I perceived myself to be. I was a lot more, it's, it's, a, it's a trigger word for a lot of people, but I had an elitist streak in me. And I, I, I have been given the opportunity to see just how toxic that is. So I just had to get down and decide that I was gonna be the best homeless person that ever was. I was going to look good and clean. My car was clean. Always, you know, I walked in, I had my shoulders, I held my head up high. I looked like I'd stepped out of the band box, even though I probably hadn't had a shower in five days. But it was like, I put on the try me cape. <laughs> okay, try me. Thank you for sharing that. I think that brought a smile to everybody's face and heart sitting here this evening. David, my question for you is going through what you've gone through, where do you find your courage? Because that's what I'm hearing you. You're brave enough to share your story. You're brave enough to stand up at one point in your life for what you saw was wrong and you confronted that. You uh, are going through the consequences of addressing that and there's some repercussions there. But you, where do you find your courage and where do you find your support while you're going through what you're going through right now? Well, a number of different areas. My mom and I have gotten a lot closer. <laughs> Seems how we've shared the same circumstance. So I've, I found her encouragement and her positive attitude as a source of strength. I'm a more nuts and bolts kind of person and, you know, cause and effect and and uh, cost-benefit analysis and all that as it goes through my head every day. But really, I guess my faith in God and being close and getting closer to my mom are the two greatest uh, wells that I've been able to tap that gave me strength I didn't know I had. Um, and I'm, part of my strength is dealing with this physical disease, which eliminates any energy that I have. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm believing in, in a lot of different processes here. But yeah, I'd say I'd have to say my mom and my faith in God are the two things that have gotten me through. Thank you for joining us today. Our hope is this segment has opened your heart and mind. Be well and be kind. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities. 
a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Please visit calhum.org. Los Angeles hospitals are being pushed to the brink. In the most populous county in the U.S., one in three people has been infected with COVID-19. Thousands have died. At the center of this surge is a community hospital in South Los Angeles that is serving the most vulnerable, hit hardest by this pandemic. NPR's Leila Fado goes inside that hospital and reports the outsized impact is the result of health care inequities that have been around a long time. Inside one of several triage tents in front of the Martin Luther King Jr. Community Hospital in Willowbrook, it's an unincorporated part of South L.A. near Compton and Watts, heart rate monitors beep as COVID-19 patients are cared for while they wait for space inside. In the emergency department, patients lay in beds that line the halls. An older woman says in Spanish, please, no, she's confused, alone. Nurses calm her. Some patients wait for rooms. Others are treated right in the halls. So we're living through a surge on a surge on a surge. That's Dr. Ryan McGarry. He's watching entire families come in with severe symptoms of COVID-19. And sometimes one leaves and one doesn't, you know, and that's brutal. He compares this moment to battlefield medicine. We're surrounded here by multiple tents and tubes and lines and, you know, effectively temporary structures to handle, you know, overflow on overflow. This is a crisis, but this nonprofit safety net hospital has always served more than it was built to since the day the gleaming facility opened in 2015 to replace its predecessor, shut down in 2007 over deadly conditions. We've been seeing, a, you know, a bit of a public health crisis in this community for the past five years. That's Dr. Elaine Batchelor, the CEO in her office upstairs. The public health crisis an epidemic of chronic illnesses, heart disease, pulmonary disease, kidney disease, diabetes, at much higher rates, as well as higher mortality rates. Here, she's working to get through this crisis, but also using it to highlight the need to bring the same quality of care to this underserved, largely Black and Latino community that, she says, more affluent communities get. This is where the essential workers live. These are the people that are stocking the grocery stores, driving our buses, cleaning up after the rest of us. And they are continuing to be exposed to COVID on the job. Add the dense housing where multi-generations of families live together, the poverty, the secondary health conditions, plus COVID, and it's an explosion of people getting sicker and dying more often. Our small hospital now has more COVID patients than hospitals that are three to four times larger. From this office, she wrote to the governor on Christmas Eve asking for help. The state sent three National Guard medical strike teams, travel nurses, respiratory therapists. She also made a plea for fundamental change. We have a separate and unequal system of funding, and we see the results here. COVID preyed on the inequities. The majority of patients that come into this hospital are on public health insurance. That pays a supplemental amount for inpatient care and makes hospitals sustainable. But that's only if a patient is so sick they have to be admitted. Meanwhile, public health insurance pays a fraction of what private insurance does for outpatient care. And that includes the emergency room that's triaging below her office. They're in our emergency department a lot 
because they don't have adequate access to care in the community. Um, And we are paying for it. They show up because there's a shortage of 1,200 doctors in South L.A. Primary care doctors, specialists, don't set up where they can't make money. You know, we've created a tiered financing system for health care with commercial at the top and Medicaid and uninsured at the bottom. And we need to change that, you know, because that's where many of our black and brown communities are. The most common procedures at her hospital are completely preventable diabetic amputations and wounds. And the irony is... We're getting paid adequately to amputate someone's leg, but we're not getting paid adequately to prevent that leg from being amputated. So this small hospital leans heavily on philanthropy to bridge the gap and show what's possible. It's why it can pay nurses and doctors competitive salaries and bring in cutting-edge technology. But Bachelor says it's not sustainable without changes to the way healthcare is funded. On the fifth floor, the temporary ICU is inundated. After New Year's, the staff relocated it and converted half this floor to treat more patients. Every room is doubled up. All but four of the patients on this floor are on ventilators, many on dialysis, and most came in with secondary conditions that make COVID a much more severe disease. Bigger hospitals threw money at travel nurses. This community hospital turned to the state. We were hit really hard, so tough is like an understatement. It's been, it's been horrible. That's the ICU charge nurse, Maria Adachica. She grew up in Compton. I know the community. So potentially, you know, this could be any of my family. On top of supervising nursing staff, tending to patients, she finds herself translating for doctors because so many of the sick are Latino and Spanish speakers. I have to sit there or one of the nurses that speak English and Spanish with a straight face and tell them, your family member is going to die. Plastic tarps with zippers hang in the doorways to convert regular hospital rooms into makeshift negative pressure rooms to keep the airborne virus particles out of the hallways. I feel like this time around, people are coming sicker and they unfortunately die quick. As if on cue, Adichiga has to run off. An alarm is sounding, a patient crashing, their organs failing. She hands supplies through the unzipped tarp to doctors and nurses frantically trying to resuscitate a patient in the room. They're in bunny suits, masks, and face shields. Then the patient in the neighboring bed goes into cardiac arrest. They call a code blue, a medical emergency. Two people arrive with more protective gear and more nurses and doctors suit up and go in to help get a pulse back. There is practice calm in the urgency. The staff work in tandem. And then Dr. Jason Prasso exits, walks away on the phone, and comes back. One patient unfortunately did not make it. And um, I think, realistically speaking, the second patient, while we did get her back, is probably not going to make it either. And so um, I just want the families to have an opportunity to, like, you know, spend some time with them. Behind him, Maria Adachiga, with the help of other nurses, rolls the bed with the man's body out of the room and into another for privacy when the family arrives. Despite all they've learned, Presso says the virus has proven difficult to manage. There isn't a whole lot that I can offer besides supportive care as an ICU doctor and trying to prevent things from getting worse, and all too often that isn't enough. It, it, it hurts as a doctor to, to say that, but... 
a lot of times there's not a lot I can do for patients who have COVID. You know. May I have your attention, please? Code blue, five north, room 501B. Presso rushes off, another cardiac arrest. By the end of this shift, five people are dead, four Latino, one African-American. A bad day, a familiar day. Leila Falden, NPR News, Los Angeles. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Tribes in Montana and North and South Dakota are welcoming President Biden's order to revoke the Keystone XL pipeline permit. Chairman Harold Frazier of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe in a statement thanked Biden and expressed gratitude for honoring treaties and keeping his campaign promise. Meanwhile, TC Energy announced it will stop construction. In a statement issued just before the inauguration Wednesday, TC said it's disappointed the new president is rescinding the permit issued by the Trump administration. Victoria Wicks has more. TC Energy says the company has a successful business base, and aside from the Keystone XL pipeline, it will go forward with other funded projects as well as those under development. But TC will stop the Keystone XL construction it already started, which includes a small segment of pipe that crosses the U.S.-Canada border. Wes Furlong is an attorney with the Native American Rights Fund, which represents the Rosebud Sioux Tribe and Fort Belknap Indian Community in Montana Federal Court. Furlong says the judge warned TC that construction, before lawsuits were settled, could result in a loss for the company. TransCanada's forging ahead with building the pipeline with this sort of cloud of litigation hanging over their head. From the tribe's perspective and from our perspective, they've really assumed a lot of the risk of doing that. Pipeline proponents say an end to the project would result in a loss of thousands of jobs during construction. But Wes Furlong says those construction jobs can be replaced. My personal hope is that there's a real opportunity for infrastructure reinvestment and then new investment in different and alternative sources of energy that frankly, are better paying and safer jobs. Several tribes and environmental groups filed lawsuits starting in 2017 against U.S. government agencies for permitting the pipeline without adequate environmental studies and for violations of treaty rights. The pipeline was tied up in litigation throughout the previous presidential administration. For National Native News, I'm Victoria Wicks in Rapid City, South Dakota. President Biden's executive order on protecting public health and the environment and restoring science to tackle climate change also directs a review on restoring Bears Ears National Monument in Utah to consult with tribes and report back to the president in 60 days. Bears Ears was modified in 2017 by President Trump. Since then, a number of tribes have been fighting to get protections back. The executive order also puts a temporary moratorium on oil and gas leasing in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. It directs the Interior Department to review the program and study potential environmental impacts. The Gwich'in Steering Committee and environmental groups are among those fighting for permanent protection of the Arctic Refuge. Indigenous organizations illuminated a teepee in Billings, Montana this week to honor lives lost to COVID-19 and recognize the new presidential administration. Yellowstone Public Radio's Caitlin Nicholas has more. As the sun set Tuesday evening, Bill Snell, executive director of the Rocky Mountain Tribal Leaders Council, explained the teepee serves as a memorial for those who've died from COVID-19 and as a symbol of hope as the United States transitions to a new chapter under the Biden administration. I think it's really important that we as Indian people take 
the lead a lot of times in this and be able to demonstrate our way of trying to give some hope to the world. The teepee was lit with amber lights to symbolize the dawn of the new day Indigenous nations and the United States are moving toward. Amber was also chosen because the Washington Monument and other sites were illuminated at the same time across the country as part of a national COVID-19 memorial. Snell said he hopes this display, like the installment of teepees erected in Billings last month to symbolize tribal members who've died from COVID-19, will stir the Biden administration to put even more resources toward fighting the pandemic, which has disproportionately impacted Native Americans. I'm Caitlin Nicholas. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the Center for Indigenous Cancer Research at Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center dedicated to cancer research, medicine, and cancer care for indigenous population. A no-charge online risk assessment tool is available at roswellpark.org slash assessme. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean, and Walker, LLP, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for more than 30 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Molly Fisk. Observations from a Working Poet I just watched on my tiny phone screen the inauguration of Joe Biden as President of the U.S., number 46. I listened for a while also, but the commentary was so banal and I'm so unused to ordinary television and hearing all those opinions regurgitated that I had to turn the sound off. It's worse than Olympic commentary. I don't need to hear anyone tell me, there's George Bush and Laura. Even with their masks on, I recognize all our former presidents, first ladies, secretaries of state, and even Senator Bernie Sanders. I turned it back on for Lady Gaga and the swearings in, J-Lo singing her medley beginning with This Land is Your Land. Hello, Woody Guthrie. What would you be thinking if you were here? This guitar kills fascists. Biden's speech, and of course the very young poet who stood up to the microphone as if she'd been born to it, and maybe she was. Amanda Gorman, a black L.A. twin with a Harvard undergrad degree and a bright yellow jacket that called out, Hey, look, new dawn, and let there be light, simultaneously. She got rave reviews on Twitter from the non-poets, and mixed but higher than average ones from the poets, of whom my feed is overly full, as you can imagine. She played with words, just is with justice, used a lot of paired rhymes, and then threw in other random rhyming to pull it all together. I don't listen to much rap, but there was enough rhythm in her poem to make me think of rap. Mostly what I was thinking of was her presence. Her solidity at the mic and her embodiment of something I don't know how to name. She went up there and managed to be herself, despite the crazy scene, reading confidently in wind and snow to very famous people, but also to rows of snapping flags that were there to represent the people who stayed home to be safe or have already died of the virus. 
a momentous occasion with low attendance, not to be confused with the recent pompous occasions that also featured low attendance. I don't know what will happen to us now, us United Statesians. Everyone says, we have work to do. And I agree, though I'm not sure we understand how hard it's going to be. I kept thinking of the people on the stage being so wealthy, so insulated, how shocked those Congress members had been to be attacked two weeks ago because most of them live in a world that doesn't attack them. If we're going to make this country more equitable, the resources have to be redistributed. Not just money, but safety. They say no one with power gives it up voluntarily. It has to be wrested away. People feel they deserve what they already have, especially what they don't realize they have, like the privilege of not being in danger. It's not mourning in America, as Ronald Reagan said before screwing the country over big time. But it is the beginning of something. Everyone on stage today mentioned unity, but I think unity is hard without equity. What power can I identify first, and then give up, second, without making people have to wrest it from me. Award-winning poet Molly Fisk writes, coaches, and teaches writing in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. You can reach her at mollyfisk.com. This program is produced at the studios of KVMR-FM, Nevada City, California. Funding is provided by Harmony Books of Downtown Nevada City and KVMR with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And that's our newscast for this evening. KVMR's Evening News airs Monday through Friday from 6 to 6.30 p.m. and is available on our website, and wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up next, The Money Show with Mark Cunaberti, and at 7.30, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Thanks for listening. Have a good evening.